Hello, and thank you for listening to the AUA University podcast. Today, we're going to return to you with a special episode from the archives of AUA content, and this one is specifically for the med student, you know. Match or mismatch, how to navigate the urology application process. In a webinar previously presented, moderator Seth Cohen, panelist Gina Badalato, Mobin Mirza, Jessica Crashover, and Taylor Cohen provide an overview of the application cycle to the urology match program and offer advice for urology candidates seeking to maximize their efforts during this process. They also answer questions from the audience about the process for selecting away rotations and offer insight into various aspects of different training experiences. I will now turn you over to Seth Cohen, who will be moderating today's program. Okay, welcome this evening to the American Neurological Association's National Medical Student Curriculum presentation. We're going to get started here. So my name is Dr. Seth Cohen. I'm going to be your moderator for this evening for our discussion entitled Match or Mismatch, How to Navigate the Urology Application Process. We have some wonderful panelists this evening that are going to help give you insight into that process and hopefully give you some guidance about how to navigate that. So once again, my name is Seth Cohen. I'm an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Urology at City of Hope in Southern California. And I've had the pleasure of being a part of this uh, webinar series for the last two or three episodes. Okay, these are our panelists. Our first panelist is Dr. Gina Badalato. She's a, a distinguished assistant clinical professor from Columbia University. She's also the director of Uro urology medical student education at Columbia and has some excellent insight into medical student education. We also have Dr. Mobin Mirza, who is an associate professor and residency program director uh, of urological surgery at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Uh, and so doc Dr. Mirza has a leadership role both with medical student education and with residents as well. And we have Dr. Jessica Kreshover. Dr. Kreshover is an assistant professor of urology at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. And she's also director of medical student urological education at her institution. And then we're very excited to welcome future Dr. Taylor Cohen. He's almost there, a fourth-year medical student who is soon to be a resident at Johns Hopkins. He's recently matched, and we're very happy for him. Okay, so we're going to get started here. There's going to be an opportunity to ask questions, time permitting, at the end, and we hope that is very much time permitting. We're going to get to those. You will have the opportunity to ask those questions throughout the duration of the webinar, so make sure you're submitting questions through the through the link throughout the entire course of discussion so we can get the get to those towards the latter part, okay? And the goal of this is to really inform you, so we, we, hope, we hope we do a good job of that, but certainly make sure your questions are known. If we don't know your questions, we can't answer them. And uh, let's get started here. So, our first question, how do I select and do well on away rotations? This is a very important part of planning out your application process and as you're approaching third year and, of course, fourth year as well. So, let's start right now. We're going to get started with Dr. Mirza. Uh, what input do you have? How do I select and do well on away rotations? This is a very important question. Um, there are two or three things uh, that are important about away rotations. The first thing is that you're trying to learn about how urology works in other places besides your home school. The second is you're trying to get letters of recommendations. And the third is that you're trying to build a relationship with a program where you potentially may be able to match. So those are the three things that you may consider going in about where you should do your aware rotations. 
once you put that together, you can say, okay, how big of a program do I like? Geography plays a big role for a lot of people. Sometimes you want to stay close. You got family somewhere where you can stay. That can play a big part. Relationships that your mentors have with other uh, faculty or other programs, you can tap into those relationships. So all of those things can go together where you say, okay, now where do I go? I always recommend that you sit down with your mentor from a, a faculty member from your home program and let them know what it is that you're looking for in a program, and they can help you sort those things out. And then together you can come up with a list. The other important aspect is how your medical schools So the VSAS, which is a visiting student application process, um, make sure that you know how to work with that through your uh, medical dean's office, that you know that things are matching up, make sure all your requirements are set, simple things like did you get your flu shot this year, is your hepatitis B up to date, all those things become important as you start applying. Okay, excellent answer. Really appreciate that. I'm going to open it up for the rest of our panel. Does anyone have other input regarding selecting away rotations and doing well on them? Taylor or anyone else? Taylor, what's your input? You just did this. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with away, away rotations, um, a lot of it is just trying to figure out, you know, what, what kind of a role, um, you know, when you want to be impressive, what kind of a role are they wanting you to take um, in, in, their, in their program and, and during that month? Um, and so a lot of that's just about the beginning, you know, uh, assessing and asking what are the expectations, um, because each place is going to be very different. And so, you know, really understanding what the expectations are um, and doing exactly what the expectations are. And then if there's a grand round lecture, um, you know, make sure you, you really nail your grand round lecture at the very end. Great. OK, this is an important question. So, Dr. Kreshner, do you have anything to add to it as well? Yeah, just to go off of what Taylor was saying, I mean, another important part is that basically you are, it's like a month-long interview um, to a lesser extent, but a month-long interview. So you want to make sure that you are putting your best forward at each step along the way. Um, students are often made and broken by their impressions with other people, particularly staff and, and uh, residents. And so you want to make sure that you not only have positive interactions with the faculty, but certainly are helpful to the resident um, and helpful and always friendly to the staff. Make sure that you're consistently making a good impression. And then for that, there's, there can't be enough said about the grand, grand round presentation. Um, it's the quickest way to make an impression on a big group of people um, and so making sure that you put in the time that you are able to answer questions that are coming from a group that, to be honest with you, knows more about probably what you're presenting on than what you do. And make sure not to recycle that presentation because people tend to write about that in your letters. And so you you want to show that you've had a diversity of interests and have and have put your best foot forward at each of the away rotations you've gone on. So these are great answers. I uh, really appreciate it. I think what we're all driving at here is, you know, most or many students will match at where they do an away rotation. That's where your opportunity is to make your best impression and you have your most exposure. So be selective, understand what the program's looking for, and do a fantastic job. Okay, we're going to move on to the next next question here. All right. 
Okay, let me rewind back here. Okay, so who do I ask for a letter of recommendation? And we're going to start with Dr. Badalato. How would how would you answer this, Gina? Uh, thanks. So typically, uh, people get a letter of recommendation from other urologists that they've worked with closely. These would include people that they've done research with, either clinical research or basic science research. They're uh, the chairman or program director from their sponsoring institution, someone that knows them well, um, a place that they've done their home sub-I. Um, and then usually people get a letter of recommendation from each either chair or program director at one of the two away rotations that are typically done. I would say that uh, before you start an away rotation, you should talk to your mentor uh, at certain institutions, there are people that traditionally write the letters of recommendation coming out of that institution, and you want to kind of be sure to spend time with the person that you anticipate asking a letter from and make sure that you're asking the appropriate person, because sometimes when applications are reviewed, people will say, oh, so-and-so did a sub-I at X, Y, and Z institution. It's odd that they didn't ask Dr. So-and-so for a letter of recommendation, this person writes, you know, a high volume of letters a year, and these are good letters that, you know, this person, uh, reliable letters that are written. But um, it's it's important to, urology is a very small community, and uh, the letters carry a lot of weight. So when we review applications, we like to see letters from other urologists that are known and respected um, in the field. These are people that are well-known from their their clinical accomplishments and also known for their ability to interview and assess medical students. Okay, great. I want to open it up. Uh, any, Dr. Dr. Merza, do you have anything to add about letters of recommendation? Yeah, excellent thoughts already. I'll add two more things. One, um, what I recommend all students, especially when you're going to aware rotation, once you've identified that person who you want a letter from, you know, the, the one month goes fast, and if you're coming to a place like our program where there are 16 faculty members or 18, depending on whether you go off-site or not, you know, that's going to be hard to spend time with everybody. So if you've identified the chairman of the department or somebody who's well-known, for example, we have Dr. Thrasher. He's the president of the AUA. Everybody knows him. If you want a letter from him, you should get into that early and say, hey, Dr. Thrasher, I'm talking to you or I'm emailing your assistant. When can I sit down and talk to you for half an hour? You take your CV, you talk to him, you do a short interview so he can learn about you outside of what you're going to do in the operating room. The second thing about the letters is some programs, and I'll give our example again, they have combined letters. So when we write a letter for away students, we'll, we'll give you a combined letter that has a signature of the chairman, the residency program director, and also the medical student clerkship director. That's always an option. I, I always tell the students, look, if you want something personally for me, I'm happy to do that for you. But if you want a letter from our program, we can write you a letter from the program. At the end of the day, it's only one person that writes it and the other people just read it and sign it. But it's important if you want somebody you work with and have an awesome relationship with and you want that personal sort of touch to come out more, then ask for the personal letter rather than the program letter. And always ask for an excellent letter. Don't go in and say, I want a letter of recommendation. Go in and say, I would like you to write me an excellent letter of recommendation. And if they're not comfortable with that, then they should tell you that they don't want to write you an excellent letter. That's great insight. Very important for you guys to hear. That's good terminology to use. Um, Taylor, anything to add to uh, this discussion about asking for letters of recommendation? 
I think uh, just um, when you when you go to ask for that letter of recommendation, it's it's nerve wracking, um, and it's one of those things where every single time I had butterflies in my stomach. But you know, when you ask the person, you know, everyone who I talked to was you know extremely um, willing to write a letter and wanted the best for me. Um, so you know, even though it might be nerve wracking, um, you know, just know that you know whether they're a big chair or you know just a you know a, a you know, um, assistant professor, um, everyone wants the best for you. And, and, uh, you know, everyone who I talked to, um, was just more than willing to write a letter. Okay, great. Let's move on to our next question. So what, and, and I see this popping up in some of the questions you guys are asking online. So pay attention to this. So what step one score do I need to be competitive in urology? And when should I take step two C C S C K? And let's go to Dr. Crushover about this question. What do you think Dr. Crushover? So for, like it or not, for step one, um, traditionally is there's difficulty in trying to distinguish such qualified candidates in urology we know as a competitive field. Inevitably, many programs tend to use cutoff scores, whereby people that apply, they, before looking at any of the applications, they filter the applications for scores below X, Y, or Z. Um, over 50% of programs use this. Uh, the cutoff score can be anywhere. Um, when they did a study, there were 25% of programs of the people that responded that said that they used it, used a cutoff of 220, 42% to 30, and 30% to 100 to 40. And so it's important to get your um, try and score as well as possible in order to be the most competitive. And in terms of when to take step I think an important part of that is how well you did on step one. Certainly, if your step one score is not as strong as the rest of your application, taking the step two clinical knowledge early and doing very well on it really helps in identifying yourself as someone that does have the capacity to do well in these standardized tests. Um, I think a, a program's primary concern when people uh, with that score is that they a need for the residents graduating from the program to be able to pass their boards. It's actually part of the accreditation for each residency program. And so this uh, has been shown to correlate with board passage rate, and that's why uh, programs take it so seriously. Okay, great. The Some of the uh, questions coming in are asking Dr. Crushover for you to repeat that that line of statistics regarding those scores because there was a little bit of a, a cutout on that. Could you repeat that one more time about the range of, of 220, 230, 240? Sure. So that was just of the um, of the programs that responded to the um, to, to uh, the inquiry about cutoff scores. 25% of the programs that had a cutoff used 220. 42% used 230, and 30% used 240 and above. Right. So basically, guys, what you're hearing is 230 to 240 is, is going to be in that range of where some programs may be, may be delineating. Dr. Badalato, Dr. Mers, anything to add to that discussion? Um, I think that the board score is important to kind of, as Dr. Crushover is saying, is to get your foot in the door. It's that initial kind of review of applications to – to, to separate through the applications and then look a little bit deeper about who you're going to give interviews to. I think beyond 
that initial cutoff, the board score becomes less valuable once we move into interviews and delving deeper into the personal aspects of the application. I will say that if you got a board score, if you get a board score below 230, you should really have your mentor help you reach out individually to programs to have them make sure that they take a look at your application, which may normally not have um, come across their desk, um, and have your mentor highlight some things that are, you know, outstanding about you, your research, your extracurriculars, things like that. And also, you know, if you, if you hadn't scored as well as you wanted to on step one, you should make a concerned effort to take step two earlier and, and do better on that exam. Okay, this is an excellent discussion, and it's funny, as we're discussing this, we're getting lit up with many more questions. The scores always, they always spur discussion. There's no doubt about that. So we're going to move on because we want to get to answer some of these questions. So the next question, how do I present a balanced application focusing on the most positive aspects? And the, the underline of this is, and not focus on the negative aspects. And so why don't we, why don't we go back to Dr. Mirza about this? How should you focus on the positive aspects of an application? I think the best way to approach that is, number one, identify weaknesses in your application. The way you can identify weaknesses in your application outside of just looking at your board score and your GPA is sitting down with your mentor and saying, this is what my application looks like. This, this is my board score. This is my GPA. This is how much research I have done. Um, these are my extracurricular activities. So sit down and sort of review some of the important things. And once you've identified where the weaknesses are, then you need to figure out how to make up for them, or not necessarily make up, but how to emphasize things that could become strengths where the weaknesses no longer look like weaknesses. So, for example, if you have, as mentioned, a uh, average uh, step one score, so let's say it's 230 or 220, and it's sort of below that cutoff that most programs are using, well, then take your step two and do awesome on it. If you have not a good amount of research in your CV as you're thinking about doing this, well, then you need to sit down with the research director of the program that you are in and say, hey, what are the opportunities where I can sit down and do some research? Are there any presentations coming up at the next section meeting which I can help with? Is there a clinical research project? that I can jump on and work on. Or if you have your own idea and say, look, I've been thinking about this idea. How can you help me approach this question? Are there resources? Do you have a list of patients I can look at? Build a database. Just show initiative and actually get some work done. The other aspects have to come through in a personal statement, interviews, things like that. Um, and I'm sure other people can out on that, but those are the basics. Okay, wonderful, comprehensive answer. Excellent. Dr. Badalato, Dr. Kreshover, anything to add to that? Why don't we go to, let's, let's keep moving here, because I think we're going to answer this question again in other frames, within other frames. So let's keep moving. Um, Taylor, what would you tell our future MS3s and MS4s about how many places they need to apply to to ensure they match? So this is certainly a controversial um, question and a question that comes up a lot. Um, so in this uh, last round of applications, um, applicants applied to on average 70 uh, programs. Um, you know, each year the number of places that people are applying to um, is just growing and growing. 
Um, and it's just a, a simple matter of you need to have a certain number of interviews in order to kind of have good odds of matching. Um, so the number kind of calculated of, of number of interviews that, you know, people tend to need to have, I think, above a 95 percent chance of matching is about 15. Um, so last year, on average, um, people went to about 11 interviews. Um, and so that was certainly something that, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're applying to kind of the, 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 the programs are kind of in your wheelhouse. Um, some, you know, reach and some safe programs. Um, but, you know, it really be, is dependent kind of on your application. Um, and some people might have uh, circumstances in which, you know, if your couple's matching, you might have to apply uh, to, to more places um, just in order to, to make things logistically work out. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately, the, the number of applications is going up. Um, and that does mean that, you know, uh, applicants have to pay more um, for each additional uh, application. But um, I think, you know, in this last year, the average was about 70. Okay, great. Dr. Dr. Badalato, what would you answer to this question about how many programs to apply to? Yeah, I agree with uh, everything that Taylor said. It's a, it's a controversial uh, area. Um, by the way, for all of our listening audience, you can actually see the, the statistics from this past year's match, um, dating for this year and dating back for, to 2014 for comparison on the AUA website if you, uh, look under the match statistics. And you'll see on those trends that the average number of applications in terms of where people are applying has only been increasing over time from, you know, the low 60s now to about the 70 as being the average number of programs that people are applying to. Um, it has to do with the fact that there's no real regulation as to how many programs any one applicant can apply to, um, at least right now. Um, looking at internally at our applications at Columbia, 50, we received applications from 50% of, of the entire population of people applying in the match last year, last application cycle. And it seems that people are are becoming less selective as to the number of places that they're applying to and then becoming more selective once they have the interview in hand and, and they're deciding between where they want to go on an interview. I'm not saying this is the right or probably the most efficient way of um, conducting your application, but this this seems to be what the trend is. People are wanting to kind of hedge their bets since urology is a competitive match and they, they wanted to be um, more selective at the point when they have the bird in hand and they have the interview at hand and then deciding on what interviews they want to go in relative to the other interview offers that they have. Okay. Excellent. This is a great discussion. We're going to keep moving because I, I want to get to some of the other questions. Okay. So what are interviews like and how do I do well on these interviews? Dr. Badalato, let's go back to you. How, how should someone do well on an interview? I think the best piece of advice is just to be yourself, to know, you know, the vast majority of programs have reviewed your application very carefully, um, and they're just looking to see if you're a right fit for the program, if you're going to fit in with the culture of the program, if you're going to fit in with the residents, if you're someone that they're going to want to trust and rely on when they uh, hear you present a patient to them in the middle of the night, and someone that they're going to trust uh, for you to take care of their patients. Um, so most of it has to do with the personality fit. We're interested in your hobbies, what you do for fun. Um, 
I would say just to be relaxed on the interviews and just know your application really well because a lot of the fodder for the conversation is going to come from what you've written down about yourself. So if you've written that you love, you know, you love music or a particular genre of music, be prepared to talk about that in, in great detail. Um, and I think you should just you know, look at it as though you're interviewing the program as well to see if it's a good fit for you and and try to be as relaxed and as yourself as possible during the course of the interview. Okay, great. Dr. Kershover, what would you add to that? How, how should someone do well in interviews? What is that experience like? I completely agree with Dr. Badalato. I think the most important is just to be yourself and, you know, most of it is about the it, in terms of small things, of course, it is an interview, so you want to look your best and present yourself your best, and it can't be emphasized enough to know what's in your application. Um, one of my personal pet peeves is when people have on their application about what their hobbies are. You want your hobbies to be actual hobbies, um, and you want to be able to speak about them. Um, we had a student that said seen antique watches and he didn't know about he was wearing one and didn't know how it worked um, and when we looked at it it still wasn't actually working so you know you want to make sure that what you're saying is legitimate one of the most important things in terms of it is like Dr. Badalato said it's you want it on the other end of the phone um, and so much of that has to do with trust so you want everything in your application and you want what you're saying uh, to the people that you're interviewing with all just be honest. Great answer. And, you know, it's true. This is really relationship building. I mean, as much as your statistics matter, you're also engaging in a long-term relationship of trust. And and it's it's a two-way street. The, the, comfort, the program has to feel comfortable with you. You have to feel comfortable with the program. But you're going to be spending a lot of time with these people over the course of five to six years. So personality matters as well. Interpersonal relation matters as well. Uh, Taylor, what, what would you say about your interview trail? Any Any traumatic experiences? Was it all reasonable? Uh, everything was uh, very reasonable. I think a lot of uh, you, you'll hear stories about a lot of other subsurgical uh, specialties, um, and you know how you know you get grilled or you know you get you know kind of difficult interviews. But um, across the board, you know everyone on my interviews, um, you know, were there just to chat. You know, all of them were very amicable. Um, I had a lot of fun in a lot of my interviews, um, and you know it's just one of those things where. Um, you know, you've done all the work up to here, just smile and relax and go in and, and just have a conversation like a, a like a, a normal human being. Um, on the hobbies, uh, one of my hobbies was I like to watch Netflix. Um, and that was probably the most asked question. Uh, they would ask me like, oh, what uh, what's a good Netflix, you know, to show to watch. So, you know, just just demonstrate that you are, a, you know, a, a normal person who, you know, will get along with the other residents. And um, I think just just relax. And, and uh, you know, the interviews were actually some of the some of the best times in medical school. So I uh, really enjoy it. Yeah, that hits on a key point. Urology, we enjoy a, a group of people that um, really take pride in being, you know, fairly interactive, interpersonal people. So once again, we want you to be a real person. Um, anyone else have anything to add to this before we move on to the next question? What, this is Gina again. One thing just to add is that your interview doesn't start when you walk into the conference room with the interviewer. Your interviewer starts when you set foot on that campus because every interaction you have, ranging from interaction with staff, um, any outings you have with the resident, 
resident uh, team, all that factors into the impression that you make on the program. And so you want to just be mindful of that throughout your time as a, as a whole with that program. Excellent. Okay, Dr. Mirza, next question. How should the students go about making a match list? What should they take into consideration when doing that? Oh, excellent question. So as you're as you go through the interview trail, you'll learn a lot about the program. You know a lot about your own program, um, and then it's a matter of how you want to prioritize things. So conceptually, you have to think about how big of a program you want to be in. What did you like about the faculty? What did you like about the resident? Um, did you want a program that has really strong research? Do you want to be on the West Coast and where, where it's always sunny? So you got to look at all of those things as you design a match list. One thing that's really important as you put your match list and your rank list together is to say, what's important to me? I think a lot of us get into this idea of, what if they don't like me? What if they don't rank me number one or two? Why would I put them that high if, if I don't think they're, they're going to rank me high? The match rank list favors you. So write it the way you want to write it. And then once you've got your list down, Again, share it with your mentor. Sit down with him or her and say, look, this is what I came up with. What are your thoughts and ideas based on my own priorities? And they can help you sort it out. Sometimes one little tidbit I would give you is that can become a conflict because let's say you come and show me your match list and I ask you, well, where is the University of Kansas on this list? That could be a problem. So when my students, my own students come and show me their list if they want to, I say, look, just take our name off that list Show me the rank of the other ones that you want to share with me. And then once you walk out of that room, you can put ours wherever you want. Because I don't want them to feel pressured um, that somehow, you know, they're going to put me one or two. Or if they're putting me 10, then I say, well, I'm not going to rank them high. So you want to take that out of the equation so there is no perceived conflict of interest with your mentor. But the key is write it the way you see it based on the concepts that are important to you. Great. Dr. Kreshover, anything to add about making a match list for the students? No, I completely agree with Dr. Mirza. The only other thing I would say is, is just no, I, I mean, I think this is my personal opinion that I think it's a great opportunity um, to go somewhere different and do something different uh, where you do your residency is not necessarily, in, in, in my opinion, hopefully not where you end up ultimately practicing. And so, you're serving your community best by going somewhere else, learning about other places, learning how they do things other places, and then coming back. It's a finite amount of time. Um, and so I really would just focus on what you think is, what what are your priorities and how the programs fit into the, your priorities. This is all great information, and, and, you know, it's important to remember it's five to six dedicated hard years of your life, so you have to figure out what, what environment will you be most productive in. No one wants an unproductive resident or an unproductive colleague in an environment like that. You know, everybody wants you to be happy and content enough that you're willing to push yourself to the limits in your training experience. So you have to figure out for yourself what do you need to really be happy. A lot of your time is going to be at the hospital. Maybe you need some sun. Maybe you need a place with culture. Maybe you need a place with opera. Or maybe you need to be close to your family. Whatever that is, figure out what's kind of semi-non-negotiable in your life to have that contentment and then run with it and make that your guiding principle. Uh, okay, anyone else want to add to this before we move on to the next question? I said that was very well said, Dr. Cohen. 
Ah, thank you, thank you. All right. Okay, we're going to move on. This is a very important question that everyone on the panel is going to answer. So we're going to, we're going to actually go right to Taylor with this one, and we're going to come back to other panelists. What is the greatest lesson you learned in participating and advising students in the 2018 AUA match, you, Taylor, being a student who was in the match? How would this impact how you would advise candidates next year? Yeah, so so two things really stood out to me. Um, you know, one one kind of a pro tip, um, one way to kind of help defray the cost of traveling um, is applying now if you're able to uh, for a travel credit card. Um, so often you have to spend like a minimum payment within the first few months to get uh, some uh, some mild bonuses. Um, but oftentimes you can uh, make the majority of these uh, minimum payments uh, just paying for step two uh, CS or CK. Um, and these uh, mild bonuses significantly help reduce the cost when I was flying across the country for interviews. Um, and then the second thing, um, just really enjoy your time on the interviews. Um, you know, one of the best things about the uh, interview trail is the other applicants. Um, so, so, you know, they're incredible people and they're exactly the type of people that you're wanting to spend the rest of your life um, working with. Um, so, you know, several of the applicants I met are going to be my co-interns uh, or re uh, research collaborators um, and friends as I go forward in presidency. Um, so really enjoy the process. Enjoy meeting um, all these really uh, cool applicants um, and enjoy the process because it goes by very quickly. Great. Okay, we're going to come right back to Dr. Crushover again. How would you answer this, Dr. Crushover? Greatest lesson for advising students in the match. Um, this year, uh, one of the things I had learned about and not previously really understood is just how different the application, how much the application process has changed. Uh, Ten years ago, the average, app, average number of programs an applicant applied to was 40, and now it is 65. But in practice, average number of interviews has not changed at all. So students are spending a lot more money. Um, it's, you know, estimated to be about seven grand um, on the application season and not necessarily at all increasing their odds. So in advising my uh, candidates for next year, one of those things is really just trying to have them focus on where they truly are most interested in going, the programs that they think they want to and not do waste their time, money, efforts, et cetera, on programs that they're not interested in. Okay, great. Dr. Mirza, what, how would you answer this? What is the greatest lesson you learned in the match and advising students? Well, I think one of the things that uh, um, I need to do better and I feel like uh, we need to do better as teachers and faculty who are advising students is um, how to emphasize their strengths um, in how we talk to other programs, how we write their letters. Um, when it comes to sort of, uh, for lack of a better term in my mind, um, the, the grit factor, you know, so in everybody, we're, we're looking at excellent students. I mean, everybody's worked hard. Uh, you know, we're trying to change between a 242 and a 245 board score. Uh, I mean, these kids are just amazing. They're smart. Um, they're probably going to be more successful than their, their mentors have been. Um, so I think how the, the key for me is just to emphasize that grit factor in their application, um, you know, how they can achieve so much how they can balance so many things in their lives, how they can start way behind uh, because they weren't privy to a, um, a, good, a great education to start with, they had to work while they were going through medical school, whatever. I mean, there are so many things that people do to become accomplished. Um, I want to learn how to emphasize that better so others can see that and we can highlight that and we can promote uh, these young students' careers. 
Excellent. And Dr. Badalato, how would you answer this question? Greatest lesson to advise students for the match? Yeah, this year for me, the biggest um, message that came through in advising the students was really the power of the interview process. And this was, this was um, an encouraging message. I had, I, I had um, a group of students maybe that didn't do as well as they would have hoped on their initial board exam, but they were excellent, excellent interviewers. They were personable. They were, um, they were great people to be around. They were great storytellers. And those people did exceptionally well um, and really had a great, got interviews at very diverse, very competitive places. Uh, I've seen the opposite occur where someone did great on the board's uh, exam but really didn't interview very well. Um, and I think when it comes down to it, when programs are looking at people, they'd rather have somebody that they can talk to and relate to, and they would prioritize that a little bit over than, you know, a 10-point difference on the boards. So when I when I counsel and coach uh, my students next year, I'm going to put a little bit more focus on interview counseling and doing mock interviews just to make sure that they shine, you know, on their interviews. And most of the time it's just an issue of nerves and breaking the ice and having questions prepared and, and things of that nature. Okay, this, this is fantastic input. We're going to keep moving here because we've got a lot of fantastic questions from the listeners. So we've got a couple more questions, set questions to go. We're going to get relatively efficient answers for these, and then we're going to move on to answering participant questions. Okay? Okay, so next question, are you able to couples match with a significant other who is matching in March? And so we'll go, we'll go to Taylor because he just experienced this. What was your experience with this, Taylor? Yeah, so unlike the specialties uh, that match in March, um, applications can't be linked. Um, but this is, it is possible to do what's kind of termed an unofficial couples match uh, with urology and another specialty. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of couples matching with my wife as she's applying OBGYN. Um, so one of the common strategies is to um, apply to large cities um, with multiple programs and try to focus interviews um, in these cities. Uh, this way, when you match the person your couples matching with, we'll have several options in the same city. Um, you know, but I think one of the most important things is just communication. So communicate with the programs, let them know that you're part of a couples match, um, and they'll try to do their best to facilitate, you know, you ending up uh, together. Um, that is really a priority to have happy residents, and a happy resident is someone who has a significant other on the other side of the country. Um, so at every interview, I bought, brought this up with the program director and made sure they are aware of the situation. Um, and then the second thing is just communicate um, with your, your the person your couple's matching with, you know, what programs you're leaning towards, what you like or didn't like about various programs. Um, my wife and I were constantly talking and reshuffling our list um, as we went because um, we don't want to sit down at our final um, kind of rank ranking uh, talk and uh, surprise each other um, with like, oh, well, I didn't like that program. So um, definitely just communicate, you know, make it clear kind of what's going on and be open um, with both the programs and the person you're matching with. Okay, good good advice for the match and for life. Uh, Dr. Badalato, anything else to add to this? I agree with everything Taylor said. I mean, because a urology is an early match, you know, you will be, if you're attempting a couples match and assuming both people are not applying urology, you will be matched about two months ahead of time um, compared to your significant other. So as Taylor said, it takes a lot of communication 
Um, you also have to consider the size of the residency program your significant other is applying in. So it may be a little bit easier if your significant other is applying in, you know, medicine compared to if they're applying in neurosurgery or ophthalmology where they're smaller programs. Um, and so it's challenging, but it's definitely doable with proper communication and just looking at, you know, the trying to um, balance both needs of both app, both um, members of the couple involved. Okay, great. Next question before we uh, start wrapping it up with our set questions. How important is research? Uh, let's go to Dr. Mirza with this. Uh, Dr. Mirza, how would you say important is research in the applicant profile? Well, I think research is very important. Um, it's, I think it, 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 the level playing field is no longer, I've got good board scores, i got a good GPA, and I'm interested in urology. The level playing field is, I've got good, good board scores, I've got a good GPA, I'm interested in urology, and by the way, I've done some research projects already involving urological questions. Um, so I think it's very, very important. Um, as soon as you know that you're interested in urology, set up a meeting with a mentor, some, uh, somebody's going to guide you from a faculty standpoint, um, and start jumping on some projects. Um, if you have some of your own ideas, start joining those ideas. So quite simply, very, very important. Okay, great. Dr. Crushover, anything to add to that importance of research in your application? I think that um, one of the things that can be emphasized is that it's just ne it's never too late to get involved in research. Uh, I think most impressive and what but programs tend to look at the most are publications um, rather than just abstracts or posters uh, showing that you have seen a project all the way through to publication and through the peer review process is particularly impressive. But even if that is something that's lacking in your, in your application, you can get involved at any point, ask to jump on, you know, writing a chapter or doing potentially doing a case report or something that moves along a little quicker um, at a minimum so that you can talk about it during the interviews. Okay, excellent. Thank you, everybody. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the American Neurological Association. This is a really fantastic organization and really one of the true benefits of being a practicing urologist uh, here in the U.S. of A. and really internationally as well. Uh, and so it's got thousands of urology members. It's very active Twitter uh, feed for the American Neurological Association. And the great news is that you as medical students can get involved. You can join the American Neurological Association. There's actually a very, there's very significant efforts on the part of the AUA to get medical student involvement because we want to engage with you. We want to find out what your concerns are, what your interests are. We also want to give you the opportunity to get to know urology as well. And so feel free to go to the website to follow the Twitter feed. We've got a whole bunch of hashtags that are often used with AUA, AUA18, AUA Match, Med Student Urology. These are things that AUA uses very commonly in their Twitter feeds. In addition, uh, it's important, it's important to know that there's actually a very specific page within the website for national, for called the National Medical Student Curriculum that actually has a lot of information for you that I'm going to show you in a sec. Really quickly, we want to plug the American Neurological Association 2018 meeting in San Francisco. So if any of you have research that you've submitted or perhaps uh, you're interested in attending, anyone could attend the AUA meeting. It's the national meeting of all urologists across the country. The fantastic uh, opportunities there are to really interact, meet urologists, see what the research is, get yourself really involved in the topics of discussion, educate yourself about what's going on in urology, and, and have a good time. It's really, it's, it's a good group of people that are looking to make patient care better. 
Okay, and then so this is what I was talking about. There, there is an opportunity for medical students to join the American Neurological Association. There are some benefits that come along with that, uh, including access to the core curriculum, which is an online curriculum for residents. But even more than that, there's also the ability to access the National Medical Student Curriculum. So even if you don't join the AUA, you can still go to the AUA's website and look at this page and get a whole bunch of really great information about urological uh, pre case presentations, urological exams. There's probably the best exam I, demonstration I've ever seen for the male genital urinary exam on this website that really gives you a fantastic explanation of how to do it well. And so this in and of itself, even if you don't join the AUA, come to this website, learn some material, get familiar with the topics of urology. Okay, so now we're going to go to some questions with the attendees. All right, so let's get started. And I want to thank you all for your questions. I apologize we're not going to be able to get to all of them. Okay, so this is about the VSAS. Do you really need to still do you really need to fill out the short bio section on the VSAS? If so, what do you know? What do you want to know? And so why don't we direct this back to Dr. Merzer or anyone? The VSAS. Do you really look at the VSAS, and do you need do you need that bio section? Yeah, I think. Uh... The bio section is not critical, um, but I think you should fill it out. It doesn't have to be a long piece about who you are, but a very simple paragraph about who you are, uh, a quick statement about why you want to be at the University of Kansas, for example. Um, all of, Most programs are not looking at that. Um, some programs look at your bio and, in addition, even ask for a letter of reference. Um, so there will be programs where you apply through the recess process and they'll get back and say, hey, by the way, we need Dr. Mirza to write you a letter of reference before you come to our program. Um, so it's important to fill that by out. Not everybody's reading it, but some programs are reading it. So if you haven't filled it out, they need it, then your application might get pushed down farther. Um, some programs may not matter because they're not filling all their rotating student spots. But in the busier programs, I think it become, becomes important. Dr. Badalato, Dr. Kershaw, or anything about the VSAS you want to add or are familiar with? Okay. I think it was said before, but just making sure that you have every all your ducks in a row so that um, a program is able to accept you um, if they choose to. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The the I think for me, my input would be the early bird gets the worm, uh, you know, and so make sure you're getting your documentation and your applications in sooner rather than later, because you'd be surprised how quickly these rotating, you know, these audition clerkships fill up very early, surprisingly enough. Um, okay, we're going to go to another question here. This is someone who's asking, as a Western applicant, uh, I believe meaning West Coast, I've heard I won't get looked at by an East Coast school unless I do an away rotation in the East. Is this true? Dr. Badalata, what would you say about that? I think that, so we, it's hard because there's so many people that apply to a given program. There are really a limited um, number of ways that we can sort through applicants. One of them is to think about, well, we have this group of equally quali uh, qualified applicants. Who's most likely to come to our program? So we say, okay, did so-and-so grow up on the East Coast? No, they didn't. Uh, did so-and-so attend college? on the East Coast, no, they didn't. Did so-and-so attend medical school on the East Coast? No, they didn't. They've spent their entire life within the state of, I don't know, California. So we, you know, we may prioritize that person a little bit lower in terms of offering an interview 
not because they're less qualified, but just thinking if we're going to offer an interview, we're going to offer it to somebody who's likely to come to our program. So I will say that if you, if this is a concern for you, when you're choosing a sub-I, you should think critically about where you want to do the sub-I in terms of the, ge the, you know, the geography of it. Because if you do do a sub-I, say, in an east coast or in the northeast, that may open up a geographic uh, area for you. And programs might look at you a little bit closer saying, oh, this person did their sub-I close proximity to our institution. They're, they're, they're open. They're mobile. They're open to moving. Um, and so I, I do think you know, it's, it helps to do some, some work or demonstrate in some way that you're mobile uh, if you want your application to get a second look. Yep. I think I would totally agree with you on that, Gina. I think your answer is exactly right. Okay. Well, here's another question. So this is from a DO student who's done very well in step one. He's gotten above 260. He's wondering if he should still take step two before submission of his application. Uh, anyone want to tackle DO applicant? Really awesome step one score. Wondering about step two. I will take that. Uh, my opinion. This is Dr. Crushover. My opinion would be that it, it's not necessary. Um, that being said, having a DO instead of an MD may be another one of those filter traps uh, from the program. So it is important in programs that you are specifically interested in to make sure that you personally or have your mentor reach out on behalf of you to the program to say, I specifically am interested in this program. Here's why. Here's what I've, um, you know, obviously my, my application speaks for itself. And please take a look at me because I'm very interested in your program. Yep, I, I think that's very accurate. Anyone else have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, the next question we're going to address is, how do I get letters of recommendation if I'm doing late away rotations, meaning August, September, October? So and I think that's a really good question. Um, Taylor, do you have anything to answer for that? Ta late away rotations, August, September, October, trying to get letters of recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when you're going into that, programs know that you know, you're wanting a, a letter of recommendation from them. Um, letters go in, in in September. Um, so definitely that August one, you know, be upfront, be, you know, be very, um, clear with the program director at the beginning. Hey, I want a letter. I would, you know, if I would appreciate it very much if you would be able to, uh, you know, towards the end of the rotation, write a letter and, and be able to turn it in before the application. Um, you know, for, for the, for September ones um, and October ones, it, it does become more difficult. You can upload letters after um, your VSAS or after your, your application has been submitted. Um, and you just have to call um, or email programs and just to let them know, hey, I had a late letter of recommendation come in. Um, you know, it's now uh, uploaded through the system. Um, you know, if, if this is something you'd be interested in, in downloading. Because um, a lot of programs download um, their application um, kind of mid-September or, or early October. Um, and so it's just one of those things where you kind of have to take the extra step and just let them know um, that, that that additional letter of recommendation may be there. I'm going to add to, this is Dr. Badalata, one of the lessons I learned early in counseling medical students entering the match is that it's absolutely critical that you have a complete application the date that the applications are open for programs to download. So 
you if you're going to be doing a late uh, sub I most so you can submit up to four letters. You only need three letters to have a complete application. So I'll have my students that are doing a late sub I I'll make sure that they have those three letters in so that programs can start reviewing their application as complete and potentially offering them interviews. And then when they get a later letter, they can notify the programs that they have a later letter that's been added on. And so what we'll usually do is we'll get a department letter, an internal letter that speaks to their research, so that's two, and they would have had a third away sub-I and have a letter in from, you know, July or June, so they would have three letters in. So you really, if you're doing one of your sub-I's late, you need to make sure that you have other letters lined up, uploaded, and ready to go when applications open in early September. Excellent information. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question. Uh, Dr. Mirza, this will be for you if you're if you're still listening. Do you recommend or discourage dual application in other specialties, meaning general surgery or internal medicine in addition to urology? What would you make of that? That's a good question. I think uh, it's tough to answer that question in a sort of broad sense. I think it would you'd have to look at the application, the applicant, and what their intent is and what they're trying to do. Um, I always talk to um, all of my students about having a backup plan in the sense that what if I don't match into urology, what do I do? Um, so having a good backup plan is important. Um, fortunately, urology is an early match, um, so you can't, it's a, it's a separate uh, altogether entity from the regular match. Um, so you can apply for the other match, your uh, rank list is not due um, until at least you know a month or so after um, you would get urology match results back anyway. Um, so you can do it that way. You can wait for it and say, okay, I matched. I'm not going to apply for the regular match. Um, if you didn't match, um, unfortunately, then you could apply for the regular match. So, But I would line some of those things up. So I, I talk to my students, and I also base it on, you know, what their application looks like, what, what are the strengths and weaknesses. So if somebody's got uh, what could be perceived as a weaker application, then I would say, hey, let's go talk to the general surgery department here and say, hey, we're doing this process. If, if I'm not able to manage it, I'd love to be part of your general surgery program. So that sort of curtails uh, the conversation preemptively. You don't have to go on a bunch of general surgery interviews because the other guys might just say, yeah, I like this guy who works at it with us. Um, and, you know, let's see if this doesn't work out for you. We'll look at your application closely, so on. So, I think it's a much more detailed conversation. There is nothing hard fast about encouraging, discouraging. Um, have that conversation with your mentor up front. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a very personal discussion to have because it's really based on, on your on your application strengths and weaknesses. It, it's a challenging road to walk, I think, because you know if you're you know if you're if you're not going to go all into urology and you're kind of dancing between two specialties, you know you run some risks. You run you, you got to have a very you got to have an excellent mentor like Dr. Mirza who's got your back and who's looking out for you because you could you could create some question marks if people from the different specialties find out and they start talking and they're like, wait, what, what's this kid doing? You know, and there is a lot of variation between some of those specialties like internal medicine, neurology. You know, maybe you should really figure out what drives you. What is your passion? You know, if you're really completely undecided between internal medicine and neurology, 
maybe you, you know need to sit down with a couple of mentors in those fields and really drill down on what what will make you excited to go to work in the morning. Um, but that can be a challenging situation to to walk. You got to have an excellent mentor. Okay, um, we're going to move on to another question here. Uh, so this is with the merger between allopathic and osteopathic residency programs. Is it still necessary to take the USMLE in addition to the Comlex? And so I don't know the answer to this question. Who can help answer this question? Anyone have any ideas? Yeah, so um, you, if, if you're trying to be competitive into urology, you still have to take the USMLE because those of us who are looking at your application have no way of saying your Comlex score as a DO student is this equivalent on the USMLE side. So we have no uh, sort of standard playing field there. So I think if you're in a, a DO school and you have to take your complex exam for your graduation, your licensing, well then you have to do that. For the urology meds, as it stands right now, you're gonna have to take that USMLE unfortunately because we have no other way of sort of matching you up with another applicant. It's gotta be an even playing field and that's the only way you get that playing field. So my answer is yes, you have to take it. Anybody else in the panel have input for that? Comlex and UMSLE. I think, you know, just in terms of, you know, some of these requirements, you can always check, um, you know, the, the requirements on each of the uh, program's websites. Um, you know, each of them lays out, like, how many letters they want, how many, you know, what, what is required in order to apply. Um, so, you know, I from what I've heard on the interview trail is, is everyone has to take uh, the step in that the the, that, that, that's pretty much required by all programs. Um, but if you ever have questions about what's required or not required, um, you know, you can definitely go to the website or email, um, the program coordinator, um, and, and they can often, uh, clarify, um, you know, what is or isn't required. Great. Okay. Next question. Uh, so this is Dr. Kreshauer. This will, this will be for you. Uh, any advice for medical students who do not have a home program? So it's difficult to get research letters, et cetera. What would you, how would you guide them? So the important part is just finding a mentor in some capacity. Um, I think that the, the five of us are in a unique position um, that way, and that's part of our intent in doing webinars like this and being involved in the AUA's Medical Student Curriculum Committee is to try and reach out. Obviously, we are all um, champions of uh, urology and urologic education, and so it's important to have someone to help guide you along the way. Um, oftentimes there's like a partner program and so becoming as involved as early as possible in somewhere else so that you can find that mentor is, uh, is, is important. But honestly, um, any one of us would be happy to answer some questions and try and help guide you on, in any direction. Great. Anything anyone else have to add? Don't have a home program, but interested in urology. I agree with everything that Dr. Kreshover said. I have a lot of respect for the students coming from a home program with no urology department because uh, it takes a little bit extra work to get a mentor and to you know build a relationship with someone to do research. And at least for the sub eyes that come through our institution that don't have a home institution, I make a concerted effort to try to, to mentor them and guide them in a special way and support them in a special way. So um, I would say to that person that wrote that question, whoever inspired you to pursue a career in urology, 
I would I would turn to that person and either they themselves or their own mentors from their home residency programs can help get you on the pathway to, to support you the way you need to be supported during your applications. Excellent. Yeah, I, I've had an experience like this this past year where someone reached out to me who didn't have a home program, and it worked out well for that person. He, he was an excellent candidate, but it, it can be done. Okay, uh, so let's move on to the next question here, and this will be for Dr. Badalato. Um Could you please comment on how much your preclinical grades matter versus third-year grades? Uh, how can you answer that? Um. I think there's a lot of variation in medical schools across the country in terms of how people are graded preclinically. Um, some programs are pass-fail versus others actually assigning grades. I think that we pay, we put, I mean, when I review an application, we place more weight on the on the clinical grades um, and the number of honors. It doesn't matter what rotation per se, if it's surgery, gynecology, but that somebody was able to perform well on the wards, that there's a lot of weight that we put towards that. I think the preclinical grades come into play in terms of giving you the background to succeed on your board exams, and also some schools consider that when they do AOA nominations. Um, so if you're AOA, that's that's super impressive. It's not a prerequisite, but it's it's impressive, and I, we tend to place more weight on the clinical performance and definitely how you do on your sub eyes and urology. Okay, great. I, I think that's extremely accurate. Um, I, I don't have much to add to that myself. Anyone else? Anyone else want to add to that? Otherwise, we'll move on. Um, Here's, an, here's another interesting question, and we'll just direct this to the group at large. Will it be more difficult to get interviews and match if I'm coming from a medical school where there's 10-plus applicants to urology? So this is obviously someone who has a, lot, a medical school with a lot of urology applicants. Um, any, Dr. Kreshover, any input for this? 10-plus medical students coming from my med school going into urology. That's a, that's a good question, and I haven't thought about it, to be honest with you. Um I think inevitably, like it or not, there probably will be more cross-comparison amongst yourself and um, the the other applicants from your school. I know personally, we don't it, at our program. We don't care if if a bunch of students are all from the same program. It's really going back to the beginning. It's mostly about uh, the applicant as a whole and. The possibility of a fit in that type of thing. So I don't think it will be to your detriment, but I do think there's more potential for comparison amongst that small group of you as opposed to comparison of the individual to a whole. Yeah. The um so so my institution, we've had a couple of years of 10 plus people applying. Um, and so you you do sometimes run into issues of of, you know, they'll only take a certain number, you know, per se, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're kind of coming from a group of 10. Um, but a lot of times things tend to kind of sort themselves out. You know, one person wants to say in one, you know, geographic region, another person wants to go to a different region. Um, and so some, some degree it, it sorts like that. Um, but one of the important things is, you know, if, if you were to get an interview and you're not going to take that interview, um, you know, you might turn down that interview, but you might let, you know, one of your friends who's, you know, also applying, um, who, you know, might be very interested in that, you know, just say, Hey, I just turned that down. You know, if you're interested, you may email them and, and say, Hey, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in coming to your program. Um, you know, because it might not necessarily be because, um, 
you know, you're not a good enough applicant. It may just be because they're saying, Hey, we're already interviewing, you know, five people from your, you know, your program. Um, that that's the reason why you might not get the, the, the application. So, um, it definitely pays to, um, communicate with one another. Uh, we had six, uh, from Baylor this year apply and we definitely were communicating back and forth in order to, um, you know, if someone dropped a, a, a interview, um, someone else could, you know, email and say, Hey, I'm very interested. Um, and then that way you kind of can keep it within the family. Great. Okay. We're moving on to the next question. So if you don't match in urology and you didn't interview for another specialty, can you participate in the March scramble? Uh, anyone have any experience with this helping students participate in a scramble that do not match in urology? Uh, yes, you can participate in a scramble if you don't match in urology. Actually, this past year, there were there was an unprecedented number of vacancies. Eleven programs had vacancies. Um, obviously, that those, you know, immediately after a program doesn't fill its spots, they start, you know, making a plan to interview and fill the spots as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, I think that, the scramble itself can be very competitive and that you, you need to have a backup plan on top of that. So either you're going to spend a year pursuing research or um, doing something that's going to enhance your application when you apply to the match the next the next time around. You know, you you would you need to work with your mentor and talk about the strengths and weaknesses of your applications and possibly double applying next the the following year I would consider that um especially if the match you know if you kind of go through and digest the reasons why you didn't match and what you would change the following year when you re-enter the urology match Okay, so I think uh, talking about that timeline, what Dr. Bottolotto was saying, uh, Dr. Bottolotto was saying that even in urology, there was a few programs that didn't match, and so you could even have scrambled into urology, albeit a very competitive scramble. Going back to the clarification of the question overall, yes, you can also still scramble in the general match as well, meaning typically you're trying to scramble into a general surgery internship is what you're trying to scramble into uh, to get that year of surgical experience as you apply again to urology. Now, uh, and, and also as Dr. Bottolotta was saying, though, you got to, at the point where you don't match, you got to have a number of backup plans. You know, maybe it's going to be, maybe you luck out and you scramble into your urology spot. That's going to be really, really rare. More likely than not, you're going to be scrambling into general surgery internship positions, or you're going to decide to take a year off. And you have to decide what's going to benefit your application the best based on where your weaknesses were. There is a lot to be said for getting a year of clinical experience on the wards and keeping your clinical skills up and maturing them as a surgical intern at a great program. And occasionally, spots do even open up at, at, at categorical urology programs that lose a resident. Maybe someone gets married. They have to leave the program. You never know. So even taking that one year and keeping your skills going, maybe you ultimately get into a PGY2 spot. So there's a lot of ways to strategize around this, and it really is a personal discussion with you and your mentors about how you're going to manage that, that challenge. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question here. So what is the typical lead time necessary for setting up away rotations in urology? Taylor, how would, how, do, how would you have someone organize that? How much time do they need to give themselves to organize that? So a lot of programs will start um, their application. Uh, it's generally like two to three months ahead of time. Um, and so you'll hear back um, maybe two months um, before an away rotation. 
Um, but some people hear back like a week before away rotation. Um, so it's a very fluid timeline. Um, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, you have to kind of put a couple applications out there. And then, um, from there, you kind of, you, you kind of have to, to select because some people are very slow in getting back to you. Some people are very quick in getting back to you. Um, and so it's definitely one of those things where, you know, you should be definitely putting your application in two to three months ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, most places will get you, uh, you know, let you know at least a month or two ahead of time so that you can kind of set up any type of, uh, you know, lodging, um, and then, you know, work with your schedule in order to, to make it to your way rotation. Great. Okay. We're going to move on to another question. Dr. Kreshover, just coming back to you a little bit to some things we were talking about during the panel discussion. And so someone's inquiring, you were kind of talking about maybe not doing your residency in a location where you wanted to practice. Is there, was there more behind that or what was your input regarding that? No, I just think that, I think that uh, most benefit to you as a practitioner. So when you go out into practice is that an important part, and that's that's part of training, is basically seeing things from a lot of different perspectives and figuring out what works for you. And that's on every level. That's certainly at a surgical level, you know, not everyone approaches things the same. Ureteroscopy is not a ureteroscopy. Uh, it's not the same ureteroscopy in everyone's hands. So seeing as much as you can and getting a diversity of experience, I think, can only benefit you. Um, so it, if you go to medical school, residency, fellowship, and start working all at the same location, then you haven't potentially lived up to, to as much as you can, uh, as much of your potential and figured out what you want. The more you see, I think the more you figure out yourself. And this, and this is great input from Dr. Kreshover. Everybody wants to expand their horizons. I think from a functional perspective, it's important to understand that you can practice urology wherever you want. I mean, you can do your residency wherever you want, but you do want to give yourself an opportunity to have a robust experience in training. You know, medical school, residency, they're such unique experiences. You really don't, you can't replicate that time at any point in your career. So whatever your choice is, make sure you're giving yourself the best combination of training experience and quality of life that you want. You know, I mean, quality of life's Never fantastic as a resident, but but you want to give yourself the opportunity to, to be happy enough, but really get a fantastic training experience that's going to make you the best urologist you can be. Okay, next question. Um, is it normal to bring your spouse or family with you when you travel for interviews? Um, Taylor, why don't we go back to you? Did you bring anyone with you on your interviews? Is it normal to bring a spouse with you on interviews? Um, so some, some, some people did uh, bring their spouse or significant other with them um, on interviews. Um, it's a pretty hectic time. I think I was gone for about a month and a half, um, just going interview to interview. Um, so, you know, uh, I think some of the significant others kind of picked and, um, picked and choosed where they went. Um, otherwise, um, my, since my wife was also interviewing, uh, we had no inter overlap of any of our interviews. So I personally, I didn't travel with anyone. Um, but you know, a few people brought their moms along to one interview or something like that. So, um, you know, uh, if, if the spouse wants to be involved, then I would definitely say, um, involve the spouse because, you know, uh, or significant other, because they're also going to be making, um, you know, this, this move with you. Yeah. Anyone else have any input on that? Bringing spouses to interviews? 
It's a personal decision, but you know, every every you know, as as the panelists were alluding to, anytime you walk into the door at a program, you're interviewing. Whether you whether you're talking or not talking, the way you dress, who you're with. So remember that everything you bring with you is part of your interview. So be prepared for that, and make sure the person with you is prepared for that as well. Okay, um, next question. Any updates on the AUA Physician Scientist Residency Program for this year's cycle? I don't. Ha- I have no information on this. Uh, Dr. Badalato, Dr. Mirza, any uh, information on the AUA Physician Scientist Residency Program? Sounds sounds like a no. I, <laughs> I, I know that this year is the first year that it is starting. Yeah, uh, it's a, so, it's so, a really new program. Yeah, yeah. So this year. Um, this past year, it wasn't available to me um, or my uh, applicants, um, but next year it is available, um, and I believe it's at uh, Wake Forest, um, Michigan. There's a couple other ones I can't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it is available starting this year for for this upcoming applicant. Cool. Yeah, it's, it seems like a real exciting new opportunity, but it's going to be very program specific. So you're going to, you know, you're going to have to drive towards those specific programs with your questions about it because it's it's really unique and new, actually. Um, Gina, any experience with it yet or no? No, I, I, this is something I have to do some more research on and get back to you on this question. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting because it's new and, and probably has a lot of promise, but but certainly it's going to, you know, you're going to throw some curveballs at people with, with the quandaries about it. Um, but hopefully the specific programs that are offering this will really be excited to answer your questions regarding it. Okay, so um, this has come up with a few panel, a few uh, participants. What advice can our panel offer MS1s interested in urology? Uh, so, Dr. Bottolotto, what can you, what would you offer an MS1 as far as interest in urology? How should they get involved? What should they do? Um, you know, it's it's hard in the midst of your um, your first year of medical school to really delve deeply into the clinical arena. But I've had students approach me who are first year medical students that they're interested in urology and um, I'll invite them to conference. I'll invite them to a procedure. um, And, um, you know, if they're interested, you should contact whoever runs clerkships for medical students at your institutions or mentors, medical students to see if, if you're on vacation, if you're, if you have downtime or if you're on spring break, if there's any time for you to come shadow somebody in clinic or spend some time in the operating room, um, because it's good to have that early exposure. In my experience, the students that have come to me early on have had a durable interest. They've come to me early, and they've preserved that interest, you know, to the point that they want to apply in urology. And many schools don't offer urology as a as a required rotation during their major your major clinical year, or it's um, kind of a part of the general surgery rotation that you may or may not have. So I think I think early communication with the Department of Division of Urology and your at your institution, some early exposure whenever time permits is is important and uh you know, it's something that you should uh pursue. Great. Anyone else have I think it's an excellent answer. Anyone else have anything to add to that? I completely agree with Dr. Bottolato and would only say just to get involved in small ways. Um, there's a lot to be said about the impression that you make early on. And if people are seeing your face at uh, here and there at uh, Grand Rounds or a journal club or spending an hour or two and on an afternoon to break up your study schedule, 
I seen some patients in an office shadowing one of the attendings. I think that, that does a lot to help solidify your potential interest in urology and does a lot on the program's part to invest in you and want to see um, uh, see you succeed and give you the best letters possible, best advice possible, et cetera. Okay, great. All right, we're moving on to the next question. How are reapplicants viewed during the match process? How are reapplicants viewed during the match process? Is having previous unmatched designation detrimental to your application if you really want to continue in urology? Dr. Mirza, any in- input for the reapplicants? Yeah, this is an excellent question. So, number one, this, it's not detrimental, um, <clears throat> but there's no doubt that when we look at an applicant and we figure out based on your application that you did not match the year before, the automatic question that comes to somebody's mind is, why not? And then the second question is, well, what did you do in that year when when you didn't match? How did you improve your application? So I think one important thing it takes is for you to be candid about that in your application and also to address that in some way in your personal statement. So don't use the same personal statement you used last year when you applied. Put in a new statement and that explains what do you think happened and what have you done in the meantime to improve it. The second thing is, again, the importance of mentors and people who are batting for you. So, for example, if one of my students doesn't match, I rewrite the letter and say, this is what I think about this person, this is what I think went wrong, and this is what they've done to do better and be a good candidate. So it's not detrimental. Be candid about it. Explain it so nobody's asking and it's not mysterious. So if they can't figure it out and it's not in your application and you write it, somebody will say, well, they're hiding something or they just don't know. They'll get your application will get ignored. Um, so be sure that you're addressing it, that you're not hiding it. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's detrimental. I think it's important that you sit back evaluate it, sit down with your mentor and say, hey, what happened? Are there things that I can change or is my application in a way where nothing's going to change and I'm going to be in the same spot next time? So um, you got to be able to emphasize some strength um, and work with your mentors on that. Great. Okay. I think that's that's a wonderful answer. Um, anything else have anything you want to add? Otherwise, we're going to keep moving. Okay, so the we're going to go for no, about another five to ten minutes here because we just have a ton of questions and we want to try to answer as many as we can. Uh, this one's actually directed to Dr. Botolato. Um So the recent AC Jimmy update changing the PGY one year into a PGY one euro one year um, makes things a little different for those that have taken a prelim year in general surgery and are looking to perhaps match into a, a categorical PGY two spot. Any input on this change in the ACGME and how it could impact, uh, I think, really both for general applicants and for someone who's already done a PGY-1 surgical intern year? Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. Just to clarify, so this is a change proposed by the ACGME, approved by the Residency Review Committee, and has yet to be approved by the American Board of Urology, although it seems like it's likely that it's going to be approved, this change is going to be made. And what the change is proposing is that students are no longer going to match now into a prelim year of general surgery. They're going to match into urology, and it's still going to include um, 
the same required months of general surgery. I think it's three or four months are still required of general surgery electives, but it's going to include now dedicated urology rotation. So they're going to need to spend uh, time on urology and other other rotations that are going to enhance and specifically prepare um, interns for a career in urology, such as, you know, radiology and getting um, comfortable with reading, you know, cross-sectional imaging. I think that this change was, or this proposed change is an effort just for urology programs to take control over the training and the early education of their residents rather than, you know, uh, kind of surrendering to general surgery for a year and then having them learn about urology as a PGY2, I think it's going to be a, a good change, assuming that it occurs. It's going to allow for early education in urology to build a, a kind of a very specific foundation in urology for, um, for our interns and get them involved in the culture of our department um, early. Okay, great. Anyone else have anything to add about this change with potential change within the ACGME? Uh, interest, I think, I think it'll be helpful actually for most trainees, but, uh, otherwise yeah, so we'll keep. Mm-hmm. At the, um, at, we talked about this a lot at the, uh, recent Society of Academic Urologists, which is for program directors and, um, the, uh, chairs. And the thing for applicants to know is that it doesn't necessarily change. The graduation requirements for residency remain the same uh, regardless of this intern year. And so the the four years in urology uh, stay the same. So it's not that by doing a prelim PGY PGY one year, that would necessarily hinder the chances of matching as a PGY two. That being said, those uh, pop up not as commonly, obviously, as um, is is rematching into a urology program back again as a in a PG one type PGY one type slot. Okay, great. All right, there, a question that's come up a few times from our from our participants: What advice can we offer IMGs, international medical graduates? Um, Dr. Mirza, what advice can we offer IMGs in the application process? Um, uh, the advice to IMGs is very similar to advice to um, general students or uh, you know students who are at American medical schools. Um, you you got to find a mentor. Number one, I mean that is, I think if if you haven't heard anything yet in today's conversation, if you have you should hear that you need to find yourself a mentor who can guide you in this process. So find a mentor. Number one. Um, it's difficult for IMGs, especially if you're here and you're not part of a clinical setting, you're not involved in any um, research work, and you're, you just, you're just here because you graduate medical school and now you're looking for a residency. Um, so you need to be able to get involved. So if you are in Kansas City, for example, you need to email Mubeen Mirza at Kansas City or the clerkship director or the research director, Dr. Lee. Send them an email and say, hey, I am an international medical graduate who's interested in urology. How can I get involved in your program, whichever city you're in? You're going to have to find a connection, and within that connection, you have to put in some work so they can learn about you, they can become interested in you, and then they can support your application process. Um, I think um, it's very, very difficult when you're applying as an IMG into the urology match or any other match. I think it's very, very hard. Um, we're looking at competitive applicants, and we see a, a competitive applicant from an American medical school. 
I think generally people favor that over somebody who's coming from an international medical school. And I think international medical graduates already recognize that. So in order for uh, you as an IMG to stand out, you're going to have to find a mentor. You're going to have to find a program where you can shadow, you can do research work, and then you can grow and emphasize your strengths. And people can say, okay, this guy is different. He's awesome. And therefore, we're going to support his application. Or we might even want him for more our own program. So it's, the opportunities are out there. You have to be uh, more uh, aggressive and assertive about approaching people and getting those opportunities. Don't be afraid to err, not to email back, be persistent. Don't be offended if somebody says, no, I can't help you. Try the next person. Keep moving. Great answer. All right, we're going to move on to the next one. Um, this is for Dr. Bottolato, Dr. Crushover. I've heard that female applicants get asked about their family plans on the interview trail. How do you suggest responding appropriately to this question? Any advice or special considerations for female applicants? Specifically is not supposed to be asked. So um, that is an issue. If it is, that's not an appropriate question to ask either a uh, female or a male applicant. Um, I think that number one probably is an applicant. It's something to consider about, you know, program itself and potentially your uh, interest. I mean, I think the best answer is is just to say, you know, if you haven't if you haven't thought about that right now, you're just focusing on X, Y, or Z. Um, it, it, that is within the guidelines to that those types of questions are not supposed to be asked. Yeah, yeah. Any, any specific questions about your, you know, your family planning, your personal life, all of that's really off limits. Um, and if it does occur, I agree with Dr. Crushover, just be vague about it. Just say, you know, I have, as she said, I haven't thought about it. I'm not sure. I'm focused on my urology interviews. You know, at that moment, you're not going to stand up and say that's an illegal question and walk out, but just make note of it. And what happens, at least with some of my students that I mentor, if things happen that are inappropriate on the interview trail, I ask them, take note of it. Then after the match is over, then I'll review it and see if it's something I can reach out to the program the program director or um a contact I have at that program and just address it um, from, a, from peer to peer in an anonymous way so that they can improve upon it um, for the next cycle of applicants. Great. Okay, we're going to get a couple less questions in here. So quick answers, guys, so we can get them in. Um, so my for an MD student pursuing a year off between MS3 and MS4 years for a dual degree like an MBA or research, when would you advise taking the step to CSCK? Any input? Taylor, for that, when should they take step two CS or CK? Probably if, if you have a good step one score, then I would, you know, I would hold off until after the application is in. Um, right. But, you know, if you have a not as great step score and you think you can really put the time in to, to do a better score, um, then, you know, definitely do it enough time to, to, um, to submit it. Okay, next question. My research is a basic my research is with a basic science urology mentor who's a PhD but is very well networked. Is that letter worth including or I should only stick with clinical letters? Dr. Mirza, a letter with a PhD is helpful or not helpful? Absolutely. If this is somebody you've been working with, knows you well, has done you've done a lot of work with them, yeah, you should include that letter. Okay, excellent. 100%. 
Yeah, I think we all would agree with that. If it's a strong letter and someone you work with closely, make sure you have MDs in there, but you know, you should include that as well. This is from someone. What is the number one reason for people not matching other than low board scores? Well, I hope we've kind of answered a lot of that. Um, you know, uh, um, anyone else want to add anything definite do not do's in the application cycle? Uh, do not come across bad on your away rotations. Um, pre- programs talk. Um, if you, you know, if you show up late, if you aren't, you know, respectful to the interns or the residents, you know, if you, um, you know, if, if, if there's some issue with patient care or something like that where, you know, you, you messed up or you lied about something, um, that definitely gets around, um, and that can definitely hurt you. Okay, great. Um, if they, if students hold off on st- taking step two CK and CS, when's a reasonable time to take it? I think as late as possible before you graduate med school. But any, anyone have any input for that? Taylor, you just did that. Any, when would people, when should people take step two CK if they did well on step one? Uh, so, uh, you need to not be taking it in the middle of October, November, or December, um, cause that's when interviews are. Um, some people took it in September. I took it in September, um, just after I had finished um, uh, my application. Um, but, uh, people either took it, um, in September or they took it in like Jan, uh, January. Okay. Guys, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions, but we hope we've given you a taste of the application cycle. We hope that many, I see some repeat questions. If, if you didn't get your question answered, go back and watch the archive edition of this. It will be online at the National Medical Student Curriculum website on the AUA website. And hopefully you're going to get your answers in the earlier parts of the presentation. Um, we hope we can be a resource for you, for you as National Medical Student Curriculum Committee members of the AUA. Please learn from the website, see some great, great case presentations, try to come to the AUA, try to join the AUA. Um, it's a fantastic organization. I want to thank Dr. Badalato, Dr. Mirza, Dr. Kreshover, and Taylor Cohen for their fantastic participation. Also, we want to thank Jody Donaldson and Mary Pham, coordinators and managers for the education team from the AUA who are just fantastic at what they do. And of course, Dr. William Holbert, our chair of the committee, who's been our guide, and, and we certainly appreciate his encouragement. We appreciate you spending your time with us this evening. Give us a few days to get this posted as an archived webinar, and we look forward to interacting with you again in the future. Good luck and take care. Thanks much. 